listening to A Thinker's Guide to the Apocalypse. In our first season, you and I are uncovering what the archetype of the apocalypse has to teach us, particularly in these times of disruption, pain, and uncertainty. As we explore the psychological meaning, we're going to dive deep into your inner world so you can discover where and how you need to grow. I'm your host, Jen, a licensed professional counselor, MDiv earner, and all-around curious soul. My mythical lawyers want me to remind you that all the information in this podcast is most definitely not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. If you enjoy this podcast, do me a favor and rate, review, and subscribe. Okay, enough of that business. Let's dive in. In the cellist of Sarajevo, Stephen Galloway penned a reluctant sniper's thoughts. A weapon does not decide whether or not to kill. A weapon is a manifestation of a decision that has already been made. A weapon is a promise. It's a promise as much as my wedding ring is, and the papers I signed when I adopted my cats, and and the many contracts that I have signed over the course of years. And for years, I've been trying to make sense of the many promises I was taught to make in childhood, and the precious few I've remained determined to keep. In our 14th and second-to-last episode of this season, we're letting ourselves open up to the possibility of the promise of the apocalypse. And not just the promise of it, but what it will mean to keep promises that we've made along this journey. Friendship is complicated. I don't have a specific story to tell you about it today, partly because I have so many stories and they feel... They leave me feeling kind of ragged, like my heart has been scraped on the pavement of connection, of intimacy. Friendship feels sometimes like when I was riding my bike when I was maybe nine or ten. I've never been much of a daredevil, but I rode it in the woods behind our house. Really not technically behind our house, it was across the cul-de-sac. There was a lake or reservoir or something back there. And so I rode my bike... And I wasn't wearing knee pads. I wasn't wearing, I think I was wearing a helmet, but I'm not positive. And I was riding on this rocky path and I was going so fast, it seemed like. And it felt wonderful. It felt like freedom. It felt like independence. It felt so good. I felt connected to myself. Right up until the moment my front tire hit a rock and I flew over the handlebars. It was mostly okay, although I felt awful. I scraped up my elbow, I scraped up my knee. There was all sorts of scrapple in both of those uh, wounds. And I went back home and I, I got taken care of. I'm sure they cleaned out my wounds. They bandaged it up. But I was so resistant. I didn't want to wear a Band-Aid. I hated, hated how they felt when you took them off. And so the idea that I 
I could just walk around with an open wound was uh, obviously not acceptable to my parents. But friendship sometimes feels that way to me. It feels like I'm wanting to walk around open. To expose who I am, I suppose, to the air and to seek healing and to not cover it up, to not bandage it. Which, again, not a super safe way to go through the world. And we all need our defenses, we all need our bandages. But that's how I feel about friendship. And I've always felt pretty tender about friendship. It seems for a very long time like it just hasn't been an option for me. It's like, I don't know, it's never been an option for me to be a world-class skier either. That it's like, oh, that's a nice idea, but but probably not for me. It, friendship has felt many times in the past like it was something I was just destined not to have. And it was destined not to have it given my unique mix of trauma and depth-oriented tendencies and the aforementioned desire to go out and show my wounds to the world. I always seem to come off too fragile or maybe too sensitive or, or too something. For many of those I've attempted to not just befriend, but to fit in with. I've never fit. Not anywhere I've lived. Not in any community I've ever been a part of. Divinity School came closest, but in many ways, Divinity School felt like a band of misfits, banding together to take down the patriarchy and spread the good news of some long-dead man who once inspired an empire to crucify him and millions to imitate him. And even when I was at Divinity School, I couldn't help but find myself wondering who would take my place if I didn't exist of how in many ways perhaps no one would really miss me, that unique part of me that made me me and not just another, not quite warm body, but just another brain, another person, another character in, in this story. If I had just never been imagined, never mind conceived, would anyone ever think to miss me? Is that even possible to do? To miss somebody who who not only has never existed, but nobody's ever thought of them existing. It, it seemed to me then that everyone would get along just fine without me. Friendship has never seemed to fit for me. It's, I keep struggling for all these metaphors to explain to you what friendship feels like. And... In some ways, friendship, the act of friendship, not just the concept, but the act, feels like this dance that everyone else knows the moves to. And I, ugh, am stunningly awkward at. I took this, I don't know if it was ballroom dancing, it was some sort of dance course in college, because you had to do a physical education course. I think maybe you had to do two. I know I took golf, and I was not very good at golf, but I also took this dancing class. And we did the this contra line dancing at one point. We did, oh, North Carolinians, you're going to want to scream at me because you'll know what I'm talking about. But there's like a North Carolina beach shuffle sort of dance. I don't remember what it's called off, off the top of my head. But in that class, it, it just seemed like others had the rhythm in them. And even if they didn't quite, they eventually caught on. It, it's sort of like being in... That great Hogwarts scene where Harry is t- 
teaching Dumbledore's army, the Defense Academy, or uh, I don't remember what they called it, actually, but the DA. And everybody but Neville could get it. Ugh, fucking love Neville. Like, we talk about, like, what Hogwarts horse house would you be, not horse. Oh, there weren't a lot of horses in Hogwarts. I don't know really what house I would have been, but it feels clear that I would have been Neville. Except I'm also bad at plants. But I digress. Friendship, it feels like that dance that everybody knows the moves to. And I just can't get it. And it feels like I arouse amusement as much as pity from those who, who get close enough to see. And I learned long ago to mask the awkwardness and to mask it in a kind of pseudo intimacy or not just pseudo intimacy, a pseudo authenticity where I just play awkward even when I'm not awkward and allowing myself to lean into the intentionality of what I assume I probably will be allows me some control of the narrative. And really, that intentional awkwardness often now at least gets transmuted as charm. And all charm in many ways is as a cover. It's a skill whereby you learn how to fit in by watching others carefully. And then you mimic what you see with surprisingly accurate skill. But I make errors. I always do. I have only ever been successful at failing. Or maybe. Maybe the error is in the pretending, the defense against the intimacy, the armor against vulnerability, the stories I tell myself that may or may not be true. Here's one of the stories I tell myself about all of this, about friendship, about promises. There's something profoundly fucked up about me, or maybe not about me, then with me. Many people over the years have offered explanations as to what the fucked upness about me actually is. They might say things like, Jen, you're stubborn and you dig in your heels. You refuse to make things right until you want to. Oh, Jen, you're new to relationships. You're unseasoned. You need to take time. It's okay. Like, just give yourself some grace as you learn how to navigate them. They say things like, you're fragile, you're deeply sensitive, you're so deeply sensitive you can't bear to hear a crossword, you're attachment starved, you're deeply wounded, you're desperate, boring, flaky, naive. I think underneath it all, I think what they're trying to tell me with kindness and cruelty and shame and delight, I think what they're trying to tell me is that I'm human. <sighs> or maybe, in some ways, because this all ends up feeling so convoluted to me, maybe what they're trying to tell me is that's what they are. And they can't bear to hold the humanness that I present to them. So they shove it away under the carpet, under the language that seems to pass for intimacy, under the surface where they don't have to look at it. And so often friendship, and really in many ways connection, 
feels like people trying to speak in a language that only feels familiar. Like how when I watch a telenovela or back when I went to restaurants and I could eavesdrop on conversations, especially conversations in other languages like Arabic or French or Urdu or deep, deep Southern, which I can't always distinguish. When I listen to those conversations, when I watch the telenovelas, it feels like I know what they're saying because I can understand the emotion, even if I feel stymied by the words. But in friendship, it's the reverse. I understand the words, but I'm stymied by the emotion. I don't know if this mail makes sense, but I think, I think when I trace it back in my notably faulty memory, this is a sideshow, but I was going to tell you all a story about how these friendships disintegrated in ways that I couldn't grasp, I couldn't understand, and I went back to look at my journaling and old text messages, and I realized that it happened much sooner, like much more recently than I had realized. I kept pushing it back in the past, pushing it further and further away. I imagine because it, it feels painful to touch, which also might be the reason I'm not telling you that story. It feels too tender. But my faulty memory, I, I don't know always if I can trust it. I trust the stories I tell myself because I know that they're stories, but my memory in some ways is supposed to be fact. But too often it feels like fake news. Was that true or did I twist it? Did I gaslight myself? It's trouble, troubling to find what is reality and what is the shit I've just constructed to feed in to these complex, psychological, confusing things that make me who I am for good and for ill. When I trace it back in my faulty memory, I end up in this place where I was 12, reading the Bible for the first time, just a handful of months away from going to Disney World for the first time. I was convinced that hell was real and Disney was going to be a ripoff. And the only way to escape the threat of hell was to ingratiate myself to the creator of all there is. He was, is, a flawed character. He has always preferred perfection over authenticity, piety over reality. Over the years, I've discovered that many people choose to craft their identity with such care. But I've yet to find many who are willing to admit it out loud to me. I suppose that defeats the point. God, or at least the God that I grew up with, was a master at illusion. He was a magician with a sleight of hand that he could move from being a narcissistic asshole to the caring, loving father who wanted to welcome you into his embrace. At least that's who they told me God was, but in many ways, it felt like that was the God dressed up in a costume like Mickey would be dressed up in a costume, or some college kid from Iowa would be dressed up in Aurora's 
outfit. The god, god was underneath the artifice. And I, I wanted to understand who was hiding behind the mask of divinity. Who was hiding behind that god that demanded perfection? My sense, and perhaps this is just my own projection, but my sense was that was a god who craved connection. You could feel it on every page. It was written on that whisper-thin paper that crinkled every time you turned the page. The type was small, the language poetic, mostly in the way that, I don't know, classics are poetic, the classics that everybody says they're going to read, but truthfully, really don't. God was my first friend. And for long stretches of time, he has felt like the only friend that I have. There was always the promise that maybe he might be better, kinder, funnier than the people who surrounded me. Who the fuck knows if he is? I do know, in many weird ways, God, at least this picture or concept of God, This God set the pattern for friendship in me, in what he promised, even if that's a wholly unrealistic standard to judge humans thereby. I mean, we've talked about it in the past. We've talked about how patterns get made based on early relationships. It's like learning a series of promises from someone and then expecting everyone else to fulfill those promises. You and I know. That's not generally how it works. So let me tell you the pattern. At least the pattern as far as I can tell. I meet someone wonderful. I see their beauty, their strengths, just their amazingness. I idealize them some, of course. I I put aside their humanness. I focus on what is good and lovely about them. I revel in the good. I vocalize it. I say it out loud. Sometimes it, maybe often, it makes them uncomfortable. And the chameleon in me has learned to hold back the good I see in others as so as not to make them uncomfortable. I hold back so as not to get rejected. And so I see their goodness, but underneath all of that, I also simultaneously sense the heartbreak. I'm always drawn to the heartbreak. I want to understand what both fosters and fragments connection, and so much of that seems to be layered into what has broken your heart, who has hurt you, how have they hurt you. Understandably, most people do not enjoy the fact that I want to go rooting around in the most painful, tender, vulnerable parts of them. And more than the beauty, the strength, the good, I just want to see their heartbreak. I want to see their humanness. And it's a paradox. I both want and don't want them to be all that human. I want them to be more, just like I want to be more. The promise I was told from the time I was very young was if you devoted yourself to the process, if you were willing to do the work, 
nose to the grindstone, read the Bible, embed those words in your heart, break your heart open if you had to, but bury them deep for the seed to grow. If you did all that and you persevered and you allowed yourself to be persecuted, you even allowed yourself to be martyred, then someday you would be like Christ. Someday you could earn that name, that title, that you could be the most human human who was so human he was divine. I was promised that from before I could read or write and maybe even in some ways speak. I was promised that I could be divine if only I tried hard enough. And so when I was 12 reading the Bible for the first time, I made myself a promise. I promised myself that I would be perfect. I would figure out this goddamn Christianity thing. I would be a perfect daughter. I would be a perfect sister. I would be a perfect friend. A perfect wife someday. I'd be a perfect student, a perfect worker, a perfect Christian. And perhaps if I could figure out this perfection thing, I could be loved. Because part and parcel in that promise that you could be divine was a sense that you needed to be if you were ever going to get your needs met. The promise was, be more, be different, but also don't be too much. Be who we want you to be. Be who we need you to be. And you'll get your needs met. It's a tricky proposition. And that was the shit that was playing in my head when I went to Disney World for the first time and started to realize how many things I did not believe in. How I could watch my younger brothers, really my youngest brother, soak in the magic of Disney World, soak in the magic of all of these creatures in rides and stories and excitement and ice cream. I could see that he believed, and I just didn't. And when I saw Tinkerbell, it felt like I was going to murder everybody by not believing. That I no longer had what we called faith in my heart. Instead, I had all of these complications. Really, in the complications, sometimes I say they came from reading the Bible, but, but that's just another story I tell myself. The complications came because the promises didn't make sense. The promises I was asked to make and the promises I was offered in exchange. Friendship was a mystery because it was embedded with all this other shit. And so my pattern has been, I think, trying to work out this promise from my very first friend who 
I don't know if it was God or just a voice in my head that I formed as a response to my intense loneliness. And so I play out the pattern in friendships. And the fact is, I'm not certainly the only one. Uh, My story, the way I frame it, is perhaps different. I mean, I assume if you're still listening to this podcast, you resonate with some portion of it. The apocalypse is my container. Just like Disney World was a container for our very first episode and really for this whole season, the apocalypse was my container to try to make sense. It's this promise of connection that's never quite worked for me. I think because I've wanted to banish the shadows and see only the light. It's it's like the tyranny of the extraordinary, that you're not allowed to just be, to be flawed, to be human, to be imperfect. There are always shadows. There are shadows in me, there are shadows in you. And the magic of the apocalypse is it illuminates them. It shows us what what is really there underneath. And I'm asking myself today as we were drawing to our clothes, at least for this season, what are the shadows that we hide from, even after all this time? And I, I tried in it feels like a somewhat scattered way to explain to you shadows that I continue to hide from, the struggle with friendship and connection. And even now, like in the back of my mind, I'm like, Jen, you should tell them that you do actually have friends and like there are people who actually like you and don't <laughs> just think all this stuff about you, which is true. It's not just a defense. And it's a place where I am tender. It's a place that you could scrape me raw if you really wanted to. It's a place where I am continually trying to make sense of it, to understand friendship, to understand connection, to understand my part in it. And what's harder still to understand what part I do not play, what part I do not have control of. And in the shadows, we're given the opportunity to see what lurks in the depths of our heart, of our soul, of what, what is not just the curated you, the person you present so beautifully, maybe even flawlessly, to those around you. Back in the morning, we talked about these personas of who you craft yourself to be, willingly and unwillingly. We call that personality in psychology, but in many ways, it's it's the way our ego finds to make its way in the world, to be seen, to be different, to be distinguished from the others to allow yourself some rawness, but carefully curated. And the promises that we make 
my question for myself and for you is what are you desperate to forestall the end of? Is it of certain relationships, of the world, of the way things are now, of the way you imagine things may be in a month or two or forty? What promises do you make to soothe yourself? What promises do you make to challenge yourself? What promises don't you make, but you feel like you ought to? I always have many curiosities about that, but (laughs) it comes back to, I think we're all afraid to die. And maybe dying isn't even the thing. It's just the surface where we place all of that fear. And that is often what the apocalypse is, right? Like it's like this big giant end of the world. When in actuality, the apocalypse is about broken promises and about bringing light to those broken promises, both to ourselves and to others. Apocalypse it shows you, it shows me the cracks, the the places where things are not secure, are not safe. Next week, we're going to talk more about the many cracks, and not just cracks, but cataclysmic shifts, tectonic shifts in the structure of our culture, in the structure of how we know what is and what isn't, what is consensual reality. And the apocalypse is mysterious in that way, that it it's like it's like when I grew up and we would have a snowstorm. And I'd peek out my window at night. I'd look over, and we had an in-ground pool. I'd look over the in-ground pool into our yard, and everything would be so dark. Except when we had had fresh snow, the light reverberated everywhere. There's a mysterious kind of light in a snowstorm, even at the dead of night, even at midnight. You could still see your way because the stars and the moon reflect. Oh, it feels like acres and miles and uh, fathoms of just pure white. Apocalypse has that kind of light, but it's mysterious in a way because it's not just showing us what covers up everything. It's offering the opportunity to dig in. And maybe not just dig in, but also allow ourselves to melt into what is underneath the ways we cover ourselves. And along with the dark light that Apocalypse brings, it also carries a song. It's calling us to something more and less. You'll have to come back next week for a final episode to listen to it. And Noah. I will not be singing next week, but we will be talking about the song of 2020 and the ways Apocalypse is concretely urging us to wake up and to do something in the wake of all it has shown us. I'll see you then.
Dude, thank you so much for hanging out, exploring your depth, and I hope allowing yourself to be challenged to go deeper in understanding what makes you and your inner world tick. As always, I'd love for you to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you'd like to collect all your podcasts. If you're gaining value or you just really like the podcast, I'd love for you to help me spread the word. As G.B. Stern said, silent gratitude isn't much use to anyone. If you're an Instagrammer, feel free to screenshot an episode, add it to your stories, and tag me at Therapy for Thinkers. If you are not a social media person, totally okay. Just share it with somebody you care about who you think might enjoy it. All right, that's enough rambling for today. I'll catch you guys next time.